0: If you're needing a great coffee to go into the backcountry or places you can't take a typical coffee maker, consider CS Instant Coffee. Use the code ADVENTURE at checkout at csinstant.coffee for 20% off. And Athletic Brewing, the makers of the only non-alcoholic craft beer geared towards helping adventure athletes stay in shape giving athletes the ability to train hard and still feel good about enjoying a tasty craft beer after a long training session. Use the code ADVENTURE at checkout for 15% off.
1: When you look back, when you, when you go fast forward to your deathbed and you look back, you say, did I live the fullest life possible? There's so much more out there. So that was the, imp- the impetus that if I'm not growing, I'm dying.
0: This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, trying to help you find adventure every day, in any stage of life. You're going to hear from explorers, adventurers, business owners, and anyone living their life a little more out of the box than usual. Hey everyone, this interview's from two years ago, Kurt did this one, and Jerry decided on a whim... That he, wanted, that he wasn't living his fullest life possible, and he wanted to do something about it. So he embarked on <laughs> a huge adventure bicycling from Alaska to Mexico, and uh, with no training, no experience, um, and he's a great storyteller. The audio is a little muffled, but he is just so awesome to listen to that I, I wanted to replay it anyway. Um, his book, Downhills Don't Come Free, that's another reason i decided to play this is uh, one of the recent guests said that this book is what inspired them to do their big adventure cross-country bike trip and so uh, i hope it inspires you um yeah enjoy the episode and see you tomorrow
2: Hello, friends. Thanks again for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast today. Today, I have Jerry Hall on the phone, and Jerry's here to tell us about a book that he wrote about a trip that he took back in 2012, so five years ago, when he decided to bike from Alaska to Mexico. And it was just one of these, I'm going to do this sort of moments for him. And he's written a delightful book about it. So, if you want to look at his website while we're visiting here, you can find that at downhillsdon'tcomefree.com. That's downhillsdon'tcomefree.com. Jerry Hall is talking to us from Minnesota today and calling from Tonka Bay. Jerry, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks, Kurt. Thanks for having me on. And uh, I hope your listeners enjoy some of the things I have to say today.
2: Oh, I'm sure we will. So give us a little bit of background here. You decided, from the, the what I've read from your book here, you decided to just go try this. You weren't a biker ahead of time, and you just, you just grabbed your gear, went to Alaska, and took off. Is that right?
1: That's correct. Um, it would, really, the impetus of this was I had 33 years of corporate experience in sales and sales leadership in both the technology industry as well as the financial industry. Um, But it all started feeling the same. And I felt like I needed explosive growth, not just incremental growth. And I felt like there's more out there and I had more. And so I, I, I wanted something where it was big and it would be something I'd never done before. And it would be a journey that I didn't know what to expect. I knew I'd grow. I just didn't know how. And as I, as I, took up on this journey. I had never been a big cyclist. I was a casual cyclist. The most I'd ever cycled in a day, maybe 20 miles. And um, so I wasn't a big cyclist. I didn't have any of the cycle gear. I didn't belong to clubs. And this was not a lifelong dream of mine. It was pretty spur of the moment. So in a period of 30 days after I resigned and retired, I was on a flight to Anchorage to begin what to me was a journey
2: of a lifetime, which was pedaling solo from Alaska to Mexico. Wow. So I know so many of our listeners can relate to this. We have a lot of listeners out there that are working in corporate America in one fashion or another. And one of the reasons why they listen to the Adventure Sports Podcast is because we like to introduce people to new sports and life experiences that they can have. And so I know that a lot of the listeners are saying, man, it sounds so cool to just do something like that. So Jerry, you mentioned that you retired just as you did it. So how old were you when you took off?
1: I was 57. And, um, so people thought I was half nuts because what 57 year old just, uh, on a lark goes and buys a, a, just some bicycle with the intention of biking from Alaska to Mexico. There was no real training, no specific training for this. Um, and instead of progressively trying to get better and see how I would do, maybe riding 100 miles, then 300, and then 500, and progressively get ready for this trip, I just flat went.
2: <laughs> well, I think that's fun, and it is adventurous, and sometimes that works out really well for people. Sometimes I find out that they should have prepped a little bit more, but it sounds like it worked out. For-
1: I was in really pretty good condition. I mean I, I work out regularly. So I was in good general condition. I just wasn't in biking shape. So what I would um, the way I looked at it is I said to myself, you know, I'm in good shape. Not necessarily in biking shape, but I'll just I'll just pedal into biking shape. And anybody can do that. And anybody can do that in a matter of a few weeks. Your body's really resilient mm. and it'll adapt to what you'd need to be doing. And that's that was the attitude that I went with on
2: And it worked for you.
1: And it worked. And I I mean, you know, along this whole notion is, I thought, just think about it. It it didn't feel like it was that big a deal to me. I mean, I can camp, I can work out, and I can pedal. And so the way I looked at it is if I have the components, I have the capability, I'll just string a few of those days together. and, um, And what I don't know, I'll figure out along the way.
2: I have a suspicion that biking is a better sport for doing this with. And the reason I say that is that distance biking, even though it's a lot of hard work, it doesn't jar the body unless you crash. You know, it's a fairly smooth, continuous motion, and it's less injury prone. I think if someone went from couch potato to running a marathon, they might have a different experience, right?
1: I, I, would, I would totally agree with that. Even though you can get um, repetitive motion type uh, ailments along the way, I did not get those. But I have talked to other people subsequently who had sore Achilles tendons, or their neck couldn't hold up or whatever it might be. But I agree with you. I think it's it's soft on the joints and it's something that that I just felt like I could do. And you're right. If you're running a marathon and running a 50 and 100 miles, uh, you know, an ultra marathon and you hadn't trained at all, I don't think you could pull it off.
2: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So what was it that kicked you out the door? You already mentioned that you wanted to have a bigger life experience, which is cool. But there's got to be a story that said, man, this is the time I'm going.
1: Uh, It totally is. You know, I have this little philosophy that if you're not growing, you're dying. Mm. And I felt like I was standing in place. The things that I was doing required, you know, really good skills. But the next transaction just doesn't jazz you. Uh, you know, after 30 some years of doing the same, same kind of thing, it was good for raising a family, but is it really living fully? Is it, is it when you look back, when you, when you go fast forward to your deathbed and you look back, you say, did I live the fullest life possible? There's so much more out there. So that was the, imp- the impetus that if I'm not growing, I'm dying. And so what I really wanted to do is I wanted to, have explosive growth as I mentioned before I've always loved adventure stories and I've always read about how the adventurers get into some form of a pickle and how do they get out of it and what would I do in that circumstance and I wanted to see for myself in my own way uh, what I was made of as I got into different circumstances on the bike trip and then finally you know all you really have in your life is family and a bunch of great stories and experiences and Mm. friends. And I wanted the great stories and experiences. I thought this would be terrific stories with my buddies um, over a few beers. And so those are kind of the the drivers for Explosive Growth, what am I made of, and great stories to fire down a few beers with your buddies with.
2: When you decided to do this, what did your friends and family say? Did they think you were just totally nuts?
1: People thought I was totally nuts. So the first question they all asked me was, are you bringing a gun? Mm. Secondly, are you insane? And third is what in the world would compel you to do this? And what was really interesting, Kurt, is everybody devolves to the fearful side of things instead of the opportunity side of things. So look at how great this trip could be. Instead of, instead they were looking at it like you might get killed. And you know, the way I was looking at it is, What's prohibitive to some may be well within your capabilities. I just felt like I could do it. Right. So that's what my friends were were saying. And so they all went kind of to the, to the fear, uncertainty, and doubt side of things. Whereas my wife, Sue, said, you know what? She said, I believe in you. She says, you know, we've raised a family. You bought a house. You've educated the kids. Um, you've allowed me to check out of my career to raise the family. She said, go, it's your turn.
3: Mm. And
1: and she just trusted me.
2: Well, that goes a long way, especially from a wife. When someone says, go, that had to give you a lot lot of encouragement there.
1: Well, what's interesting is it it catches you, it catches many people off guard because what they would expect is they would expect somebody else, a spouse might want security and they don't want to lose their loved one, if you will. And hers was the other side of it is this is what makes you alive. Right. She said to me at one point, she said, you know, if, if we had never gotten married, I'm sure you would have explored every corner of the earth by now. So she knew that latently inside of me, there's this adventurer spirit to go um, do these types of things. But because of the requirements of career, you put them in the back, you know, in your back pocket until the timing is such that you you feel compelled to go and you can go.
2: Well, that's exciting that you found that time when you could and that you went. So you did the big adventure, but you also wrote a book about it. Were you planning on writing the book before you started the trip or did the book kind of come out of, man, I've got to tell this story. It's just too good not to tell.
1: Well, it's a really interesting lead up into that question is the the quick answer is no, I didn't ever have any intention of writing a book. I didn't go to get content to write a book, but before I left, Uh, I've got three kids, um, two boys and a girl. My daughter said to me, "She said, Dad, you got to write a blog." And I said, "I don't want to write a blog. You know, I want to just go out there and I want to pedal. I want to see the world and I just want to do this thing." She says, "No, we need to know where you are." I said, "But you're not going to know where I am anyway, because where I'm going, there's no cell service. There's no towers. There's no way we know where you are." And she says, "Just, I'm going to set you up. Just write the damn blog." (laughs) <laughs> and so so I did, and what the what I did is, as I was lying in my tent at night because I went solo and I was camping, as I was lying in my tent at night, I would write the blog on my iPad at nine o'clock or ten o'clock at night after maybe doing a hundred miles and um and tap it out, but i couldn 't send it, so many of the towns or waysides up in the far north is essentially. A gas station, general store, cafe—all built into one. Right. And when I'd go into one of those places, I would say, um, "Do you guys have a Wi-Fi?" And they would. And I'd say, "Do you mind if I plug into it and just squeeze out this blog?" And everybody was just gracious and great, and they let me squeeze out that blog. And I could get them out practically every night. But there were a few times where there was no way I could get it out for two or three days, which caused some people some worry because they wondered what happened.
2: Right. Of course. And so did you end up with a lot of people following?
1: Uh, I did. So what happened is that blog turned into essentially your journal. And as I started thinking about it day in and day out, I said, you know what? I can't just get up and write a blog and say, hey, got up, pedaled my rear off, got tired, pitched my tent, went to bed, and do that day in and day out. People will be bored silly on them. So all of a sudden I started having to think like a journalist. Mm. to say, what stands out today? What's the storyline today? What's funny? Why would anybody else be interested in that? And how am I going to tell that story? So what happened is I was putting that kind of stuff into the blog and I took on a following of 14,000 people.
3: Right. And I never
1: promoted the blog. And it just turned, It took on a, a following that I was unaware of. But pretty soon I'm getting blog feedback. When I'd squeeze one out, all of a sudden some feedback would come back and say, Dude, you gotta write this book. And there were corporate executives that I didn't even know who they were writing that back to me. So on and so forth. I get through the whole journey and, and at the end, people are saying, this is one of the most fun and interesting. We, we couldn't wait to get up, have coffee the next morning and find out what happened. And <laughs> pretty soon it, it just, it, and so it sort of became, it became, it became the, the founding of the book, really. And um, but I didn't even when I got home, I didn't expect to be writing a book. And it took me about four or five months before I decided and through a lot of encouragement by people, okay, I'll write the book. And that'll be my next stretch. And so I had the material, plus I remembered everything really well at that point. And um and so I could fill in the details that you you couldn't quite write it all in a blog, but I remembered all the things around it. So you fill it all in and it became a blog.
2: Well, that's a lot of fun. Here's a question for you. Did writing the blog while you traveled help you to enjoy the trip more? Or do you think it detracted from it? Cause then it was like, Oh, I've got to write.
1: I think it absolutely um, makes the trip better because it focuses you on really observing things and thinking throughout the day. You've got all day long, you're in the pedals. And you're thinking of everything, but along that you're also thinking, I gotta write this blog. So there was a little pressure that way of what I'm gonna say, what am I gonna say tonight, and what what's interesting about it. But then it focuses you on the little things that you might just let go, where you might not be thinking as much about what you're seeing, what you're doing, how people are reacting to you and what's funny. So I think it actually enhances the trip. And uh and I would encourage any adventurer to write their journal or write their blog so that they remember those pieces and focus more on what they're seeing and doing every day.
2: You know, I took a trip to Kenya many years ago. I had just met the wonderful lady who became my wife, and I was gone for five weeks. So I said, I I won't even have access to a post office. There was no such thing as a cell phone when, when we did this. I mean, they existed, but no one traveled with phones. So I wrote a journal. Every day I wrote her a letter in the journal so when I got back, she could relive the experience with me. And I had that same experience. It was amazing to me how much writing it down helped to clarify my experience and helped me to recall it better and to enjoy it more. And I would encourage anybody, you know, even if if you're only doing it for yourself— try to carve out a little window each evening when you're, on, when you're traveling on some adventure that put down some bullet points about what that day was. It might become a book, it might not, but man, I, I agree, Jerry. I think it really helps to enjoy the experience.
1: Well, and I don't fashion myself as a writer. I wasn't this person trying to be Hemingway and some big literary giant, but it does focus you, and it focuses then as you think of the thoughts, then how am I going to say it? And then writing the book and going through the editing process and the draft after draft after draft, how do I tell this story that's authentic, but also makes it come alive? So I would, I'm in complete agreement with you on everything that you just said, Kurt.
2: Hmm. Well, let's go back to the adventure. Let's put some parameters around it. So you mentioned flying into Anchorage. Where did you actually begin the adventure?
1: I, I began the adventure right in Anchorage. So when I flew into Anchorage, my bike was in the hold of the plane. Uh, I am not mechanical at all, and I had to disassemble a couple pieces to put it in the bike box to to fly it. And so I had to reassemble that, and I was uh, that was probably bigger concern of mine to reassemble my bike properly than the magnitude of the journey itself. Right. I trusted. I trusted what I could do. I didn't trust I could put that damn bike back together. <laughs> and, um, so I was able to get it back together and it took me about an hour, uh, in my hotel room and, um, went out for dinner, which I kind of call as the last supper, which is a funny story in and of itself. And, um, next morning for the first time ever in a, it, I was distance cycling. I was riding down, uh, sixth avenue in, Anchorage was the first time I was ever on a loaded bike. It's the first time I ever loaded my bike. It was the first time I was in Clips, and I never did any of that and never practiced in Minnesota. I just went, and (laughs) riding out of Anchorage was the first.
2: Did you have one of those what have I done moments as you're trying to get started?
1: I totally did, and I've got two of those. First of all, my bike was overloaded. My bike was I never weighed it formally, but I think it was about a hundred pounds and I'm not, um, oh. oblivious to what a hundred pounds feels like. Right. But, um, it, there's a couple things. One is I'm wobbling out of Anchorage. I'm going, Oh my God, I am overloaded and I didn't know what a loaded bike felt like. And they're very unwieldy and, and unsteady without a couple hands on them. And, um, and I said, what have I gotten myself into? Because this is just the beginning few blocks of angling toward Mexico. The second piece of that and what have I gotten into is when I was flying from Minneapolis to Anchorage. It's about a five and a half hour flight. I was on a Delta flight. My my bike was in the hold of the plane. For the last three hours, I had a window seat and it was crystal clear and I was looking out the window and all I saw was these thrusting um, mountain peaks. <laughs> big glaciers plunging down the mountains. All the and And everywhere you looked, you can and we're at forty thousand feet. I did the trigonometry on it. You can see about two hundred and fifty miles into the distance, I saw no sign of civilization. And looking mm. down at all that wilderness and three hours at five hundred miles an hour is roughly fifteen hundred miles in that segment alone. And all of a sudden it came real. It was a searing reality of like, Holy crap, what have I signed up for? But on the other hand, <laughs> but on the other hand, it's exactly what I signed up for. It's exactly what I wanted. And that's that's the fun of it. And I know what the other life was. One more day of that wasn't going to get me you know, any richer experience.
3: Right. This
1: was going to be something that was going to be so rich. And I had to figure out how I'd do it.
0: So we want to thank our sponsor, Athletic Brewing, for promoting a healthy lifestyle through making some of the world's best non-alcoholic craft beer. They make excellent tasting N.A. for healthy, active, modern adults. They use certified all-organic grains. And each can of non-alcoholic beer is only between 50 and 70 calories. They have IPA, golden ale, stouts, And tons of seasonal offerings. And recently, they actually just took home the gold medal at the US Open Beer Championships for their double hop IPA. If you would like to get your hands on some, you can save 15% by using the code ADVENTURE at AthleticBrewing.com. Athletic Brewing, the best tasting way to keep your promises. And I also want to thank our sponsor, CS Instant Coffee, for making this show happen. They make 100% Arabica instant coffee. They use compostable packaging, and each package makes about 20 ounces of coffee. So I'll take one of those with me on an overnight trip, and it makes two pretty good-sized cups of coffee. And it's an awesome feeling knowing I can just throw that in my backpack, find some hot water, and I'm good to go. Save 20% by using the code ADVENTURE at CSInstant.coffee.
2: So man that's got to be intimidating. It really had to be intimidating, but I like your thought there. It's exactly what you signed up for even though oh holy cow, you know, it it sounds really really frightening to see that much wilderness, you know.
1: Well it it, it, it takes your breath away. Um it, went, it and it was it was to me more invigorating than intimidating, even though the magnitude of it was a vi- the visual reality of the magnitude of it? All of a sudden, was like, "Holy crap!" I mean, before this, it was just Bartok, Bravado. Now you're actually <laughs> looking at what you got to do.
2: Why did I open this can of worms? Well, what did you do about <laughs> the overloaded bike?
1: I uh, got used to it. Basically, basically, I got used to it, and I, uh, you know, it's just like anything else. Your first few moments on something may not be your best. And it may not be steady, but you get used to it. And you, along the way, I got very used to it. I learned how to kind of rebalance the bike. So that helped in terms of the wobbliness. So I had a better balance. And then six or 700 miles downstream in Whitehorse, um, I sent a few items home, but not really weighty items. There are more items that were just clutter, that were getting in the way that I wasn't using. So I went to a... um, you know, one of the that a FedEx and I and I fired those items home, and but it basically I rode a heavy bike.
3: Mm.
2: Now, different bikers that have done a lot of distance touring have different theories about what to take and what not to take. In the end, are you glad
1: with what your kit was? Yeah, I, I actually think I had just about everything. I, there's nothing more that I would have wanted. What I had, a couple things like a little stove and and some um, you know, canisters of um, propane. Well, I hate my own cooking, so I never cooked. So what I did is when, I, when I'd come by one of those little gas stop general stores, I would buy a few cardboard sandwiches out of the rack, and I'd throw them in my pack. I'd buy granola bars, and if they had a cafe, I would eat as much as I could possibly eat right there <laughs> and there and try and fuel up. And then, so I I did very little cooking, so in a sense, I could have almost thrown away the cook here.
2: Yeah. Could have done without it. Even in that wilderness where the expanse, the distance between refueling supply points had to be pretty far.
1: It was, and I didn't, you know, this is kind of the, the hillbilly nature of what I did in the sense that there were times when I ran out of food and didn't have food, and I was still 50 or 70 miles away from where I might potentially get food. And I might be at the end of a day. And I thought there might be food in an area and there wasn't. And so I had to navigate. In some cases, in one case, this woman made me dinner and breakfast the next day uh, in a, in a jade mine, jade shop. She had, she says, no, we don't have food, but I can make you, I can make you a sandwich. Wow. I said, can you make me two? And then in the morning she says, and by the way, it's a hundred miles to the next town tomorrow morning. You better, you, I better make you breakfast too.
3: <laughs> and
1: um, and if you're not here at seven bells, because um, she was feeding a construction crew working about 20 miles away. Mm. So if you're not here at seven in the morning, you're gonna miss breakfast. And I'm not doing it over again. So obviously I was there that morning, and I she she made breakfast. And I said, you know, I gotta contribute something to you. I mean, you went out of your way. You've been nothing but great. She put out a little donation bucket. She says, here's a donation bucket. Just put in there we you think it's worth it. So I stuffed a few bills in there, and uh, I think she'd be happy, and I was happy to give it to her.
2: Nice. That's fun. So we started the trip. We got a feel for how you were traveling. But what was your route all the way down to Mexico?
1: The route was um, coming out of Anchorage. It went up in the far north. The routes are called by name more than by number. So I came out of Anchorage up the Glen Highway to a place called Tok. Tok, I went down to, um, down the Alaskan Highway to, um, um I can't remember the town, but I cut down off the Alaskan Highway down the Cassier Highway, which is very remote, 600 miles of just remoteness, maybe three to four food stops there to what was called the Yellowhead Highway, and I went west on the Yellowhead Highway to Prince Rupert. At Prince Rupert, the highway ends at the sea. So I jumped on the inside passage on a ferry and rode about 100 miles south to pick up the top end of Vancouver Island, rode down the whole length of Vancouver Island, and then crossed over from Victoria to Port Angeles, and then from there out to the Uh, out to the coast of Washington State, and then down 101, all the way down to the Mexican border.
3: Mm.
2: Wow, what an amazing trip. You know what, maybe it's time, if you don't mind, that we could hear an excerpt from the book that kind of highlights the flavor of it.
1: Well, so I'll give you an excerpt here. It's really, there's different things that People have mentioned to me that they like about the book. One of them is the description of the landscape and the nature and the beauty. Others are the people that I went into. I'll do a description of the awe and wonder in the landscape and the pure beauty of it in this in this um, in this excerpt. Right on. So I was flying blind on how I, how far I could get and never knew exactly where I'd end up. In any case, just take what the day gives you. As each mile passed, every one of my senses fired continually the warmth of the sun on my skin, the shrieking wind through my ears, the frigid cold in the shadows, the rain pelting and stinging my face, the smell of millions of pines in an undisturbed wilderness, inhaling the cleanest air on the earth, the sounds of their own symphony, wild rushing rivers, piercing raven squawks, swoosh of an eagle's wings, slap of a beaver's tail, and rumbling thunder echoing off the far shores or wind in the treetops, and the taste of pure mountain water, all this while, I was saturated with a speedball of adrenaline and endorphins. I was punished on the climbs but exalted at the crest, followed by swooping skydive downhills. I was living outside 24 by 7. Um, I reflected on the last few days. Traveling here by bicycle is like IMAX all day long, but mm-hmm. so much better. It's sensory overload. I was immersed in rolling planet seats, frame by frame. Drowning in beauty that was live, raw, and real, not sterilized by far too safe video screens. I had, more, I had to more than see all of this. I had to feel it. These amazing experiences were mine and mine alone, not limited, polluted, or filtered by a filmmaker or editor's view of the world. My own eyes and imagination can't be replaced. It's funny. Just like the book is always better than the movie, your own imagination, when staged, you paint your own scenes.
2: Oh, that's beautiful, man. So that
1: was exactly what I was looking for. and and I, and I mentioned in that passage that when you're out there on two wheels or backpacking or canoeing or kayaking or what many adventurers do using their own human power, you actually feel the land as much as you see the land. You can't get that unless you're out there immersed in it. You can't get it out of any movies, out of any... Uh, flat screens, or any of that kind of
2: stuff. And that's, that enhances the experience. Oh, yeah. I, I've i often said, you know, some people like to go on a trip and they want to go see a new place. But there are other people that know that'll never be enough. They have to go do a new place. And there's a, a huge distinction there. And I keep thinking there are a lot of seers that should become doers. They would just be so amazed at how much more of a of a in-depth, a live experience that they would have. Would you, uh, would you recommend people to, to pick out a way to engage with wherever it is that they're going?
1: I, I would say to that, go the most lively way you can possibly go do something. It makes it more memorable. Go to dinner on a paddleboard or by kayak or take your bicycle to dinner instead of getting the safety of a car that feels like you're in a cocoon and protected from the elements. And you might get wet. You might fall in the water. You might do any of that. But that night will be so much more memorable than the same old stuff of just jumping in the safety of a vehicle. And so I say do everything as alive as you possibly can. And I guess I equate to it in the book. It's like the signature note in a song that actually makes a song. Those little edginess of how you're going to travel and how you're going to get to do something – make the experience. And so I would very much say go out there and do it in the most alive fashion as possible.
2: Well, since you just kind of dove into this and, you know, didn't do a lot of preparation and that sort of thing, it had to be really kind of tough to get used to being on the bike that much. So you're talking about, you're encouraging people, just find a way to really be alive and engage it, go do it. But was it really hard at first?
1: It was, um, it, it, it actually... I surprised myself and I think people would surprise themselves. It wasn't as hard as I thought,
3: hmm.
1: even though you're, you're, it's grueling. Don't get me wrong. you gotta, you gotta separate the, uh, the grueling ride itself of some of the uphills and some of the headwinds. They were shrieking. They would stop you in your tracks, Wow. but you got to separate that. This trip was not, this trip was more mental it was more about feeling, man, this is exactly what I want to be doing. I know what the other stuff looks like. This is new. And I think it's more of a mental trip. And and what helps you mentally is to say, how many people in the world would give their eye teeth to be doing what I'm doing now? And particularly when you think about how many people are injured or ill, it would give anything to have a normal day. And look what you get to be doing out there. So what it does is it dulls all the stuff about the pain, the agony, the tiredness. Because what you're looking at is say, this is so tremendous. I just wish everybody could experience this. Mm. And it's not. And it's not. I'm tremendous. It's this experience is tremendous.
2: What about loneliness?
1: And loneliness, I I, I never felt lonely for a second. Um, and the reason is, I didn't know how long this trip was going to take me. I thought it was going to take me four to five months. Just I didn't know the distance. I didn't know where I'd get every night. I didn't know what I had in me. I didn't know how far I'd go. I didn't know what I could do. But I also knew under any circumstances, whether it took me four or five months, and what it eventually took, eventually took me it was only 51 days and only 43 days of pedaling. I knew under any circumstance, this trip is going to be over before it starts. Right. These things happen so fast that there's no time You know, there's no sense, there's no, there's no reason to really feel lonely. And your mind is cooking all the time. I had thoughts and ideas and songs and people and running into other people and and thinking about what my blog is going to be. All day long, my mind was active. I was never lonely.
2: It really sounds like a refreshing experience. Really refreshing. After all those years doing the corporate jobs, was it just mind blowing to get out there and experience this?
1: mind-blowing it's so much so much fun and so rewarding and, and I did it solo. Well. and I did that intentionally so well because I didn't want to wing them you know telling me good job or picking me up psychologically or helping me mechanically or physically or any of that kind of stuff I wanted to figure out what I had to get through and how to get out of my own uh, out of my own problems and so all those things just enhance and reward you know the, the, the whole experience and being solo it also made you really approachable because if you're in a group and you have a wingman of two people or four people all of a sudden you're a little part of your group and people don't approach that group because they don't interfere but when you're mm-hmm. alone everybody that I encountered everybody wanted to come and talk and beyond that people were nothing but exceptionally great because they saw your exposure your vulnerability And that you're out there alone and and how unusual it was. They would do anything. Can I fill your water bottles? I saw you on that hill. Can I climb or can I give you a candy bar? They would do anything to go out of their way to to help in any way. And it was incredible. And those are parts of the experience that you see how good people really are. And oftentimes when you turn off the news and just get out in the real world, people are tremendous.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. I bet you have an excerpt from the book about that.
1: Well, I've got some, uh, you know. There's an excerpt about about the greatness of people, and then I, I'll give you um, an excerpt or two of strange characters. If uh,
2: yeah, let's if do you it. You want to
1: go into those? Let's do it. Okay, so I'll go into the, the greatness. Um, here I'm at the Great Divide, and it's in the Yukon, and i would spent about two days climbing to get to the top of the divide. And uh, so, starting the excerpt. I burned a ton of energy the last few days as I was generally rising on the regional left and also in the face of a shrieking headwind. Finally, during the morning, I made it to the crest of the Continental Divide, a high ridge that separates two of the largest river system systems in North America, the west flowing Swift River and the east flowing Rancheria River. The wind was still howling, practically blowing me off my bike. If I blew east into the Rancheria River, I'd flow to the Laird River near Watson Lake then join the Mackenzie River in the Northwest Territories and eventually reach the Beaufort Sea in the Arctic Ocean, a journey of 2,650 miles. But if I blew mm. west into the Swift River, I'd flow into the Tesman Lake, then northwest, down the Tesman River to the Yukon River, before cutting across northern Alaska to the Bering Sea in the Pacific Ocean, a journey of 2,300 miles. Mm. But instead, I'm blown to Mexico. It's symbolic to me, the great divide between my past and as of now, undefined future. So then I go on to the, you know, a little bit in that piece, and I talk about how I'm trying to replenish myself and have a couple of granola bars. And I run into, uh, at the top of the divide all alone, a couple of U.S. Army guys told in. So here's a, just a quick little extension beyond that. So I was having a couple of granola bars at the top of the divide when two U.S. Army servicemen approached, already laughing and chatting about something before they got to me. They were coming from Oklahoma and being restationed in Alaska. Hey, where did you start? A typical opener. Anchorage, I informed them. What have you seen? They asked, wide-eyed. Well, where should I start? I shared a few of my adventures thus far. Is there anything you need? Again, good people wanting to contribute. If you have any extra water, you could top off my water bottles. That's simple. We can do that. They refilled my water bottles from their supply. We were about to part ways when one of the servicemen explained, hey, I want you to have this. It was a small decal that read in blue block letters, YBYAWC. Okay. I gave them a questioning look. YBYAWC. You bet your ass we can. (laughs) We only pass this out to members of our unit. But based upon what you're doing, you're now an honorary member. I'm so honored. I beamed at them both. This is my new touchstone. What a and can-do mantra. We all grinned. I'm glad we're on the same side. I'd hate to fight you two nasty dudes. We (laughs) shook hands and bade each other farewell.
2: That's awesome. Yeah, that's fun. Isn't that what travel's about? It's those life experiences, the people you meet along the way, the way you impact each other's lives. I mean, you may only visit for 10 or 15 minutes, but you remember those guys for the rest of your life.
1: I remember, and and, um, beyond that, there were a lot of, there were a lot of people, a lot of traveling servicemen being transferred up into uh, Alaska. So they're coming across. So there were multiple times I ran into U.S. servicemen where they all had a jug of water. They all filled my water bottles. But there's also people out traveling, normal people that are, that are RVing, and they're in the, the sunset of their life, and they're having a, a good time seeing the world. And they would all pull over and just ask me, are you okay? Is there anything we can do. Uh, Do you need anything? Do you feel threatened at all? Everybody was trying to help.
2: Mm, That's fun. And I had to ask that question, too. Your friends who said, you're nuts, you're going to die. Did you experience anything that confirmed their fears? You're still here with us, but...
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, I actually opened the book with just that. It is, the, uh, the opening of the book is an active voice, and it really has to do with um, I can either read the excerpt, I'll just, I'll just paraphrase it real quick. But it was opened by looking forward, I'm in a blistering headwind, I'm heading to a place uh, uh, toward, called Destruction Bay, up in the vast, pristine Kulani area of the Yukon. And all of a sudden, I say to myself, whoa, was that movement? I couldn't tell because my head was buffeting. And all of a sudden, I saw this big head swing, and our eyes locked, and she had me in her crosshairs. And she was a big, healthy, blonde, female grizzly. Oh. And as I looked at her and our eyes met, and I'm already at that point, now I'm about 100 feet away, and all of a sudden I glance, and into the brush are her two cubs. So all of a sudden now she has to be in lockdown protective mode. And she and I took measure of each other, and I'm sitting there. I'm already uh, too close. I'm already somewhat screwed, if you will. And then I had to decide what I was going to do from that point forward. And that's all the way the book opens. And as the the, the opening passage ends, it's um, with the thin mist of bear spray as my only defense, I made the second worst decision of my trip.
2: And you leave us hanging there? (laughs) Well, you survived it, I guess. Do you still have all your limbs?
1: I I survived it. And uh, thank God, because there's not a thing I could do about it. Uh, if she wanted me, she could have me. As it turns out, I pedaled past her and, uh, I probably came within 30 to 40 feet of her and, uh, tried not to look at her, was trying to go full speed and full speed with a loaded bike at that point, starting from scratch, you know, after having stopped about 100 feet from her, uh, was probably about 14 miles an hour, which is no, no challenge for a grizzly. Mm. So just by, um, you know, Locke, she let me go. <laughs> and I had 20 bear encounters. I was yelling at bears every single day on the far north. So I had 20 bear encounters, four grizzlies, 16 black, and um, two-thirds of them just would watch me pedal by, maybe 30, 40 feet, and their head would swivel. And about one-third of them took off into the brush. I scared them into the brush. And when I saw how fast they bolted, it was frightening. Oh, because yeah. all I had for defense was um, was a can of bear spray and my little squirt gun. I couldn't pull it out of my water bottle holder, undo the safety, turn and fire before they'd be on you. So it was more psychological safety than it was um, actual protection, in my opinion.
2: Right. Wow. That's a lot of bears. And the black bears, okay, I've I've encountered those quite a bit. But the grizzlies, I have not. And I think that would give me the willies.
1: Well, you can't help it, but think twice about what you're doing. But, uh, you know, it, like I say, just by, by luck and good fortune, they didn't do anything. I didn't become the next article the next week in, um, you know, in the Alaskan newspapers. But it was so funny about that all was when I arrived in Anchorage and reassembled my bike, I went to the REI store and I bought the bear spray and the first Thing. The woman uh, floor salesperson looks at me and says, oh, did you hear about the mauling last week?
2: Nice. <laughs>
1: and I just, I cocked my head and I said, was that constructive? <laughs> and we both cracked up laughing. And then I, you know, my the little bubble in my head pops up and says, geez, lady, did you get on trying to scare people? And then she says, do you want the bigger or the small? I said, I'll take the jumbo. and need all the help I can get. <laughs>
2: Yeah, of course. Wow. So how long did it take you to get down to uh, Vancouver Island?
1: Uh, Vancouver Island was, I don't have, the I have it in my book because I go day by day. So I could tell you a a specific answer, but I want to say it was probably uh, 25 days to the top of Vancouver Island. And it was 51 days total trip. So that would mean the next 26 were Vancouver Island and then down the West Coast.
2: So that really was about the halfway point. Then
1: it was about the halfway point, and it, and and in terms of difficulty, it didn't flatten out until Santa Barbara. So right. the whole the whole route is the margin of a tectonic of two tectonic plates grinding and scraping against each other, which creates the big mountains. So it was all mountains, and it was all headlands, and it was shrieking headwinds in the far north, which turned into tailwinds at about Vancouver Island. Wow. And then, then I started getting tailwinds. So everything I fought for the first half of the trip, I actually got the benefit of pretty much the second half of the trip.
2: <laughs> That's fascinating. So when you got to, let's say, Victoria, and then you went over to Port Angeles, did you uh, feel more at peace because you were leaving some of the wilderness behind and in, in getting where it's more populated? Or was it the opposite? Was it more intimidating?
1: It was it It was um no the, the, there is a little bit of peace, and that actually happened at Prince Rupert uh the day I got on the ferry and hit the top of Vancouver Island, it felt like Vancouver Island, I was back in civilization
3: mm, okay. and
1: I knew at that point I had just when i when I arrived in Prince Rupert, it was kind of this lamenting feeling I had that, oh my God, this wilderness portion of the trip has been incredible, and I just left the wilderness portion. And now I've entered the maritime portion, which was kind of up along, um, you know, the Inside Passage and Vancouver Island um, before I got to the coast. So I felt I felt this kind of deflating feeling like I can't tell you how much I loved that far north and that wilderness. Um, And then, you know, the risks changed as the trip went on. So the risks up in the far north were were um, the remoteness. So if you had appendicitis. A heart attack, or if I, I was barreling on my downhills. I was doing 45 to 50 miles an hour.
3: Hmm. And if
1: you, if you, if you come apart, if you crash, there's nobody there and there's no medical facilities near. So those, and then of course the animals, I had, you know, 20 bears, two moose and a, a cougar lurking, lurking around my camp that had fresh prints on the road just outside of my camp. But then that turns into, um, logging trucks. Um, headlands, narrow roads, narrow bridges, and then that turns into in the far south, down in you know, from Pismo Beach or down in the LA area south, it was all traffic and getting car doored along the strand as you, as you rode in the heavy population of the far south.
2: Right. And, uh, which do you think was actually the most dangerous?
1: Uh, I actually think that the drama, is that you're facing down bears? I think the most dangerous is probably traffic and getting hit.
2: Yeah, it's the cars.
1: <laughs> I, I think I think the reality is is that people in cars and civilizations probably more dangerous to me than the wilderness and the animals and uh, and trying to do the right things with with less support. You also get sloppier when you get when you get sloppier when you get around more population. So I could be. More carefree about where I ate and all that kind of stuff, which got me caught in a couple of situations where I thought there'd be food and there wasn't. So I had a couple of those situations. But you become, you let your guard down when you're around more civilization. I had to be more on guard in the far north.
2: Oh, yeah. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that, but it, it catches you off guard. It seems like when we visit with people that do the most outrageous adventures, people get hurt usually when they think they're done with the hard part. They get hurt when they when they let their guard down, and they go, okay, I'm glad that's over, and that's when they get in trouble.
1: You are an absolute perfect straight man for the end of my book. And I'm not going to tell you, but I will just say this. I was on, you know, obviously I'm doing distance biking, but I had an event. Mountain climbers die on the way down. They don't die on the way up. Yeah. And it's when you let your guard down, and you think you're done.
3: <laughs>
1: and... I'm, you know, I'm conscious of it, I'm abundantly aware of it, and I fell into the same trap.
2: Yeah, it's a real common, real common trap. Well, what was yeah. it like biking the Pacific Northwest? You know, let's say, you know, along the coast between the, the Pacific and the Olympics, and then down into Oregon and, and Northern California. That's got to be wonderful.
1: It's it's mystical, it, you know, because you're in the big redwoods, you're in the huge shaggy pines up in the Olympic uh, National Park, up in uh, Seattle, up in Bigfoot country, and then coming down along the coast and seeing the beauty of the coast and the coast road uh, and then into the Redwoods, you know, through coming through Oregon and then into places like Crescent City, California, and into the Redwoods and riding the Avenue of the Giants. You know, anybody who's looking for a one-day, incredible bike ride of about thirty five miles ride the avenue of the giants uh... in humboldt county california it is incredible and those are the trees that inspired you know the trees in the wizard of oz but they are it, it, it's called the avenue of the giants it should be called the cathedral of the giants mm. That's the way those trees felt and then you know coming down you you, you really had all of northern california down to san francisco and that The the ocean and the beaches, and it was cold up there. It wasn't like sunny warm Southern California. But it is beauty that you just can't describe. You just have to go see it.
2: Mm, Sounds wonderful. Well, once again, I I want to get another excerpt or two from the book. But before we do that, how can people get a hold of the book if they want to read it?
1: Uh, The way you can get a hold of the book, it's on all the major uh, areas. Amazon's got it. Amazon, Amazon Kindle. It's on Barnes & Noble, it's on Google iPlay, it's on Apple iBooks, and it's on Kobo. You can download it electronically, you can buy the hard copy. My website, www.downhillsdontcomefree.com, has a button by the book, and it takes you to each of those major sites and their order mechanism on my website. So you can just go to my website, you can read testimonials. You can read the foreword, and you can buy the book right off my website by going to Amazon, Apple, Google, Barnes & Noble, Kobo. So that's how you can can get a hold of the story and get a hold of the book. Also on my website, if you want to get a hold of me, there's a mechanism that comes right into my email. I respond to everybody. So send me an email, and uh, I'll respond and follow with you in any way that seems fit.
2: So, Jerry, I understand that you have one of the best money-back guarantees about this book, too. How does
1: that work? <laughs> well, it's more informal than it is formal. But the net of it is I say to people, I'm so convinced that they'll enjoy this read that I say to them, if you don't like the book, I'll give you your money back, and I'll buy you a case of beer for the time you took to, to read the book.
2: <laughs> <laughs> now, that could get expensive. That could get expensive. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure I can afford that uh, that money-back guarantee, but I am convinced people will love this book.
2: <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, we have a, a really honest audience out there. I don't think anyone's going to buy 500 copies and then ask for 500 cases of beer, but someone might. <laughs> you know, I want to tell everyone, I, I love to do winter adventures, too, but... In the wintertime, sometimes it's really nice to do a little armchair travel. Sounds like this might be the book for it. Downhills Don't Come Free by Jerry Hall. I love it.
1: I think you'll find the read to be fast-paced, a page-turner. Go read the testimonials. People say, I can't put the book down, and I don't know where the hours go. Mm. So I know that's a little self-serving plug, but I, I think you would find that.
3: You
2: know, when you put all the effort into writing a book and you put all the effort into doing the bike ride as well, I think that you have the right to plug it a little bit. That's just fine. That's awesome. Here's a
1: funny story, just just relative to that, Kurt, is that I thought the bike ride, I didn't have any clue how long it would take me. I thought it would take four to five months. It took me 51 days. I thought the book, when I decided to write it, probably four months after I got home, I thought it would take me one year. It took me four years. <laughs> I think that tells you the relative effort of each one of those endeavors.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, and I had to bring this up too. I was thinking before we started here, there's quite the adventure in just writing the book and trying to get the word out that the book exists. I mean, that's got to be an adventure of its own
1: right. Uh, it, 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 was, it was my next stretch. So I, did, I didn't want to write a book. I didn't do this to write a book. I didn't do it to write content to, you know, to have people come to me. It just evolved that way. And what you can't contemplate is you can't take on big stretches, what paths they lead you to. And so after I was done with the bike ride, stretches don't have to just be physical. That stretches can be something that you've always wanted to try. And you're, you're afraid to take the first step. Mm Well, I decided if I could ride that, that bike route, I can write a book. And that was my next stretch. And I just believe everybody's got skills and capabilities Beyond what they give themselves credit for and quit worrying about it and just start, just go and just pedal.
2: Yeah, that's great. You also do public speaking. So tell us about that. How can people get a hold of you and what kind of engagements do you take on?
1: Uh, I do do public speaking. I really, I love it to be honest with you. Uh, because beyond what I think, I have good messages for people because I think it's inspiring people to reach into themselves to do more. When they see what uh, attempted and uh, succeeded at, and it's also entertaining. that's what I've been told. So I speak to corporate groups, I speak at foundations, I speak for fundraisers, I speak at um, athletic stores uh, where you bring in customers what 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 I want to do is I want to my calling is to have people find their best and be the catalyst for them to find their best, and I think that enthusiasm comes through in my um in my public speaking, my presentations, and my kickoff meetings. And um and so I'd love to engage anybody about group events that they have and what speaker you may be looking for. And I can share with you many, many messages that I think bring the best out of the people that you're trying to engage. And so things that like a kickoff meeting or like customer appreciation events, customer acquisition events, um store events for their customer appreciation. I do all of that kind of stuff. It's a lot of fun, and I meet the best people in the world.
2: Yeah, man, that sounds like a lot of fun. A lot of fun. That'd be cool. Well, hey, we're running out of time here. Will you close out the show by reading one more passage from your book? I'd love that.
1: Yeah, I will read one more excerpt. I mean, I've got a lot of a lot of frontier strangers, a lot of strange people encounters, Uh, 95% of them really good. Some of them really funny. Here's a situation where I was, um, coming into a little town called Orcut and I was 50 miles into my ride that day. It was blistering hot. It was about 95 degrees that day. So here's the excerpt. 50 miles downstream. I got to Orca, a small out of the way town. I was starving and had to fuel up. I picked up a chocolate shake and a sandwich. But then as I looked up the street, I spotted a small funky bar called Elmer's with a line of Harleys parked outside. Some of the bikers were outside and smoking, only wearing sleeveless leather vests over their bare, beefy torsos. I just have to go in. With my bike shorts and canary yellow shirt, the setup is just (laughs) too good to miss. As I walked into Elmer's, those bikers looked me up and down. Hey, guys, I called out. Finally, one spoke up in a low growl. Where are you coming from? Anchorage, I said in a short and punctuated way. There was a collective, yo, can we buy you a beer? I said... Yeah, I replied, fitting multiple intonation changes into that one word. But I'll only have one because I'm 50 miles in and I still have 50 miles to go today. That got me another collective, whoa! I fired down a pint of Bud Draft in one shot, slammed the glass on the bar like an outlaw in an old Western movie and declared, gotta go, boys, and slow walked out with the proud strut of a bullfighter in all his glory. Half-dragging my feet, ass tucked under like i just dodged a horn up the keister, a new young scowl on my face and the pathetic extended bobbing arms of a Banana Republic parent seeking adulation in the square. I knew the walk. I'd run to the bulls in a festival in Spain. you never forget it. I could hear them laughing their asses off behind me. Don't look back. It'll kill the moment.
3: <laughs>
1: wow,
2: that's fun. That's fun. So once again, everyone, the name of the book is Downhills Don't Come Free by Jerry Hall. Jerry, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a delight.
1: Thank you so much for having me on the program, Coot And our listeners, look me up on my website. I'd love to engage anybody who wants to talk.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. That's fantastic. You bet you're more than welcome. And for all the listeners out there, as always, until the next show, get out there and have some fun.
0: Well, first of all, thank you so much for listening to this episode. It really means the world to us that you want to spend your time with us. If you'd like to help us further, please just leave us a review on iTunes. Share us on social media. Tell your friends about us. You can become a patron, a supporter of the show for $5 a month at patreon.com slash Podcast. And if you know somebody that would make a good guest, reach out. We're always looking for good adventure and outdoor stories and lastly thank you to our sponsors whose messages follow right now athletic brewing makes the best non-alcoholic craft beer go to their website at athleticbrewing.com and use the code in our show notes to save 15 percent on your first order after all this adventure talk if you're needing some gear yourself but you need some advice before buying Go to backpacktribe.com, where you can ask questions to the owners who have experience with all the gear, as well as all of it for sale right there on their website.